0: Good morning. I'll try not to walk away from the microphone. Good to see you. Uh, Let's pray, shall we, as we come to God's word together. God in heaven, as we have sung on your word, we will rely. And Lord, you've given us your word. You've given us a portion of the scripture for us to look at this morning. And so we pray that by your spirit, you'd help us to rely on this word together. Uh, Give us understanding. And more than that, would you give us faith to trust what you say as you reveal your son to us. Amen. So um, I think that uh, the Railway Children is a brilliant story, uh, a wonderful story. Um, uh, if you don't know it, it's about a family and the father gets taken away, and people the, the children don't really understand why he's been taken away. It's a bit of a mystery, and they kind of struggle on. And, and it turns out, as the kind of story unfolds, that the father has been wrongfully imprisoned, um, and and this kind of begins to kind of unravel. Um, And as it comes towards the end and the climax of the story, the the eldest daughter, who really the story is all about, she um, runs an errand down to the train station, lots of clues about what's going to happen when she gets there. In fact, the author tells us she had the vague, confused, expectant feeling that comes to one's heart in dreams. She gets down to the station, and the 1154 pulls in, three passengers get off. The author describes the first two and then writes, the third... Oh, my daddy, my daddy! That scream went like a knife into the heart of everyone in the train, and people put their heads out of the windows to see a tall, pale man with lips set in a close line and a little girl clinging to him with arms and legs while his arms went tightly round her. And it describes how they walk back to the house together, and then the author wisely notes at the end of the book he goes in and the door is shut. I think we will not open the door or follow him. I think that just now we are not wanted there. That scream that went like a knife into the heart of everyone in the train. What was packed into that cry. Uh, Such beauty, I think, in that sound. Because that cry from that little girl, there was so much lostness. This little girl who had been deprived of her father. So much lostness and at the same time so much foundness. Uh, our passage this morning is punctuated by a strange word. It comes twice in verse 9 and again in verse 15. If you have a look, the word is Hosanna. There is so much good news packed into that one word. Now, what does it mean? Well, the footnote in my Bible here probably says the same in yours. says it's a Hebrew expression meaning save, which became an exclamation of praise. Think about that for a minute. No, literally, um, in in the Hebrew, it's uh, two words which are an intense cry for rescue, a desperate cry to be saved. It's the kind of cry that comes out of a lost soul, someone who is so broken and ruined, someone who has fallen so deep they have no hope of climbing out themselves. And yet it says over time, it became an exclamation of praise. Now, why would such a cry become an exclamation of praise? Well, it's because the lost have been found. It's because the hopeless have hope. It's because the crushed are restored and those in peril are saved. Hosanna! It captures that moment, that simultaneous sense of being lost and found. Oh, my daddy! Save! Saved! Hosanna! It's a burst of delight. So what is it in this passage before us that draws out this burst of praise we're going to think about that and as we think about it we need to ask well what about us now as we explore these things this morning um we need to be asking will our hearts take up this cry of hosanna and if not what holds us back matthew 21 verses 1 to 22 there are three main events in the passage verses 1 to 11 tell us about the approach to jerusalem Jesus arranges to ride on the donkey into the city, causes a great disturbance. Then verses 12 to 16, we have the shake-up in the temple. Jesus goes into the temple. He causes great disturbance as he turns out the traders. Then verses 17 to 22, we have the curse of the fig tree. A strange thing where Jesus pronounces a curse on a fig tree that withers immediately. What are we going to make of it? Well, we're going to look at um, this passage in three parts, not quite the three that I just mentioned. We're going to look at an invasion. Uh, judgment, and then the question of what is gentle about all of that. Uh, invasion. First of all, then we are in Matthew's account. Let's kind of give ourselves a bit of perspective on Matthew's telling of the events of Jesus's life. Um, a number of times in the past, we've looked at this and seen that Matthew has arranged his account of Jesus's life around five blocks of Jesus's teaching, and between those, he gives um, some kind of account of some of the things that happened, some of the things that Jesus did. So we're kind of there at the moment. Uh, There's also a kind of geographical telling. Um, Jesus was born in Galilee. He spent most of his time in Galilee, right up in the north of the country. He was a northerner. Um, But it says in Matthew 16, verse 21: From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem down in the south. And there he will suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed. And on the third day, be raised to life. So from that point, Jesus, uh, right up in the north, in the, in the farthest north of Galilee at this point, he starts to make a journey south. He starts to head south. In Matthew 19, 21, it says, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea. He's coming south. Matthew 20, verse 17. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the 12 aside and said to them, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. The thing is that as we read through Matthew's gospel, we have this mounting tension as Jesus gets closer to Jerusalem. And in our passage, you see the first verse, as they approached Jerusalem, they're getting there. They haven't yet arrived. The actual entry doesn't happen until verse 10. Um, But Jesus is arriving in Jerusalem. It's a moment of climax. And what's so striking about our passage is just how deliberately Jesus puts himself into the spotlight. Now, Jesus, of course, has been sent to stage throughout Matthew's gospel. And yet whenever the spotlight has fallen on him, he's kind of taken one step to the side. But not now. This is a carefully planned procession. Jesus deliberately selects to ride into the city on a donkey. And Matthew explains the point of this in verse 4 why was Jesus doing this while well, it took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet say to daughter zion see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt the foal of a donkey Jesus very very deliberately very publicly is presenting himself to Jerusalem as king it's an invasion This was the time of the Passover and thousands of people would descend upon Jerusalem for this festival. Uh, Jesus was traveling to the festival with the crowds from Galilee. There was this northern rabble uh, descending on the city. And and this crowd of of Galileans around Jesus, they see the significance of what he's doing. They start to cause this great commotion, shouting and, and cutting branches and putting them on the road. And then in verse 10. This northern army meets the occupants of the city. The challenge is laid out. Here is your king. Will you recognize him? It's an invasion. And yet look how the king comes. The prophetic fulfillment is that your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey. The gentle king. Now this is really emphasised by what is missed out in the quotation. The quotation it comes from also speaks of the victory of the king. But Matthew skips that bit and focuses on the fact that he is gentle. The gentle king comes and in verse 10, the whole city is stirred. The city is shaken by the gentle king. In fact, this whole passage trembles with the significance of what's happening. Zechariah is the prophet who spoke of the king on the donkey Zechariah was a prophet who was using an even more ancient prophecy. He was going right back to the book of Genesis, Genesis 49, when old Jacob blesses his sons, and he foresaw that in the family of his son Judah would come the king who would rule forever. Zechariah picks up on it, and through Zechariah, the Lord says, this king will be identified riding to the city on a donkey. He will bring in universal peace. It will be through the covenant of his blood, You read about it in Zechariah 9 and Zechariah 9 says um, the Lord their God will save his people on that day as a shepherd saves his flock they will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown and it continues the next chapter just into the next chapter from Judah will come the cornerstone the Zechariah prophet is picking up on a psalm A psalm which says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, Psalm 118. And the crowd who see Jesus coming in, they recognize the link, they see the link. And so they start to shout out, um, Hosanna, which is what the psalm says. Lord, save us, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The psalm goes on, the Lord is God and he has made his light shine on us with bows in hand, Join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. The horns of the altar is where the priest would apply the blood of the sacrifices. The sacrifices that saved. See Psalm 118 tells of this procession of people crying for salvation and praising the God who saves through the sending of his king as the people in the procession move towards the place on earth where they find saving power. The place where the blood of the sacrifices is applied. That's all going on as Jesus arrives in Jerusalem on the donkey. The passage trembles with this significance, that God's salvation has come. How do we know God's salvation has come? It's because the king rides into the city on the donkey. The gentle king is coming. It's in a personal invasion, isn't it? The gentle king makes the appeal. Say to daughter Zion, that's say to Jerusalem, see, your king comes to you challenges will you recognize him do you see the two responses in this first part of the passage on one hand you got the crowds hosanna they shout god's salvation has come god is coming to rescue all our lostness is being swallowed up in foundness the deepest longings and needs of our souls are being answered hosanna and then on the other hand those in jerusalem say who is this they're stirred Disturbed, but they don't recognize the gentle king. They don't cry, Hosanna. An invasion and two responses. Then there is a judgment. Now, what is the gentle king going to do when he arrives? He hasn't really arrived until he gets to the temple. The temple is the the center. It's the, the epicenter of the nation's spiritual life. It's the destination of the Psalm 118 procession. Verse 12, Jesus entered the temple and the temperature goes through the roof. The passage continues to tremble with significance. Now, Matthew deliberately tells us three things that happen in the temple. Uh, Verse 12 is the first event. Literally, it says, Jesus entered the temple and he drove out all who were buying and selling in the temple. In the temple, this is happening. The second thing that happens, verse 14, the blind and the lame came to him. Where did they come to him? In the temple. And he healed them. Blink and you miss it, don't you? So quickly, the the, the blind and the lame come and he heals. Verse 15 say, these are wonderful works. Jesus is doing wonders. But Matthew wants us to see the significance. Why does he pick on the blind and the lame? It's because back in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 35, we hear about the blind seeing and the lame walking. and The reason is this. Say to those with fearful hearts, Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Hosanna. God has come to save, says Isaiah 35. And when he comes, uh, the blind will see and the lame will leap. And Isaiah 35 concludes, gladness and joy will overtake them. Sorrow and sighing will flee away. And the third event in the temple verse 15 again children are shouting in the temple hosanna to the son of david the authorities don't like it Uh, they say to jesus jesus you've got to stop this and jesus says are you serious don't you know what the bible says he quotes from psalm 8 from the lips of children and infants you have called forth your praise what's he saying there Psalm 8 is a a God is awesome kind of psalm. It's a song of celebration and wonder. And in Matthew 21, these children are praising Jesus, aren't they? Hosanna to the son of David, to Jesus. He's the son of David. He's receiving the praise. And when he's questioned about it, he says, of course, I'm receiving the praise. Because the psalm tells us that the children will praise God Almighty. The gentle king has come. And as he comes, he reveals all of his cards. Who is he? God has come to save. God come to bring the restoration of all the things promised in Isaiah. God worthy of all adoration. Hosanna. Of course, though, the heat of the action is the first thing he does, isn't it? First thing he does, Jesus drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves what's that about what is it the temple was first built by solomon it had been destroyed and rebuilt and built again but the principle of the temple the heartbeat and purpose had not changed when solomon built the temple and he dedicated it in one kings chapter eight you can't miss the significance of it you read through one kings eight and you see this place represented a meeting of heaven and earth god's gracious intention to live among his people And the practical significance of what Solomon says in his great dedicatory prayer. When they pray toward this place, hear them from heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. And he says it again. When your people have sinned against you and when they turn back to you and give praise to your name. Then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people. And then again, when your people have sinned against you and when they pray towards this place, hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your servants. In fact, he says it again and again and again. This is the, the dedication of the temple identifies the temple as the place of prayer, prayer for the forgiveness of sins. In this place where heaven meets earth, the place of God's dwelling is a place where people pray for forgiveness. Because in the center of the temple is the altar. The horns of the altar where the blood of the sacrifices is applied. the temple was the place where prayers for forgiveness are answered with the blood of the sacrifice. Forgiveness through atonement. The judgment of God promised promised to be satisfied through a substitute. That's what the temple was. That's what Jesus understood about the temple. That's why he quotes from Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56, which says all kinds of people will come to the place of God's presence. And in the place of God's presence, their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. There will be forgiveness. Why? Because my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. That's what the temple was. But not what Jesus found. The operation of the temple had become something else. It had become this economic enterprise maximizing profits Uh, as I said at this time many many people descended on Jerusalem to worship they needed to buy animals for sacrifice and this huge market had been brought inside the temple when Jesus sees it he says this is what was happening in the days of Jeremiah that's why he says it's a den of robbers he's quoting Jeremiah 7 Uh, that the people's hearts had been hardened and turned away from the Lord So Jesus acts out judgment as he drives the people from the temple, drives the people away from the presence of God. See, that's what happens in Jeremiah 7. In Jeremiah 7, the Lord identifies the sin of the people, their refusal to repent. He says they've made the temple into a den of robbers. And so he says, I will thrust you from my presence. Matthew 21, he does just that goes on in Jeremiah 7 to say, my anger and my wrath will be poured out. The fig tree confirms this theme of judgment. Strange thing, isn't it, this fig tree? Jesus is hungry. He sees a tree. It's full of leaves. It promises fruit. He goes. He doesn't find it. So he curses it and it withers and dies. Why does he do that? So much Old Testament here. The the prophet Micah stands behind this. And the prophet Micah, who said, what misery is mine? I'm like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There is no cluster of grapes to eat, none of the early figs that I crave. What does it mean? The faithful have been swept from the land. Not one upright person remains. And because of this fruitless unbelief, the day God visits you has come. God is bringing judgment. That's the message of the fig tree. The wicked will wither as quickly as the fig tree before the words of the mighty judge of all. Now we need not to let familiarity dull our hearts. Who speaks to the fig tree? It's Jesus. Who Who clears out the temple? It's Jesus. Jesus is none other than God Almighty. Come in judgment. And what response? See again, there are two responses in the second part of the passage. The children, what do they shout? Hosanna! God's salvation has come. God is coming to rescue. All our lostness is being swallowed up in foundness, and the deepest longings and needs of our souls are being answered. Hosanna! And the authorities are indignant. They're not concerned about God's judgment. They have no sense of a need to cry, Hosanna. And yet, in all of this, there's this big question which builds in this, in this passage, isn't there? And Jesus deliberately gets on this donkey to go to Jerusalem. Matthew interprets and says it's the arrival of the gentle king. And yet the first thing the gentle king does is he physically evicts a bunch of people from the temple. The first thing the gentle king does is he throws around tables and chairs. It's not very gentle. Then what is the second thing that the gentle king does? He curses a fig tree and it withers. It's not very gentle. How is he the gentle king? Now, if we can't connect the gentle king with his actions in the temple and against the fig tree. Maybe it's because we've got the wrong idea about gentleness. Now, I wonder if, if too many people would agree that Jesus is gentle. And yet by it, they mean that he is weak. Uh, they, they mean, I guess, that, that he's not really the man for the job. A couple of weeks ago, our water pump broke. um, And I asked Ben, um, Ben Woodcraft, if he thought that I could replace it myself. And very wisely, he told me I was not the man for the job. Um, He's right. I don't really know the first thing about plumbing, and I would have made a horrible mess. If you want a job doing, you get someone who knows what they're doing. You get the right man for the job. And yet many people, many people just don't see how Jesus is the man for the job. They think he is weak. So they try to live without reference to him. And and I reckon probably for all of us, there are times and ways in which our lives, in our lives, we live without reference to Jesus. Maybe he has a kind of phone a friend role, like the kind of, if we can't think of anything else, we might go to him. I wonder if we instinctively think that Jesus is weak. And if we instinctively think he is weak, then we're not going to organize life around him. We're going to do everything else before we spend time with him. We're going to rush away from him, not rushing towards him. We're not going to adore him. Any cry of Hosanna will be a whisper at best. And and the overwhelming sense of being lost and found in the same moment will be alien to us. Now, when this passage tells us that Jesus is the gentle king, it is not saying that he is weak. Let's look again at this fig tree. The significance of the withered fig tree is to demonstrate judgment on fruitless unbelief. But see the lesson that Jesus brings. Look at verse 20. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. Of course, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, But also you can say to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Remember what just happened in the temple. The purpose of the temple, right from when Solomon built it, was that when you sin, you pray to the temple. You pray toward the temple because the temple is where prayers for forgiveness are answered with the blood of sacrifice. The temple was to be called a house of prayer but it failed, or or people failed. They hardened their hearts. They refused to realize their sin. Their religion had become a kind of empty shell. And so Jesus enacted judgment, announced judgment, disrupted the worship throughout the traders. The sacrifices probably would have had to stop for a time as he did this. And yet he says to his disciples, whatever you ask for in prayer, Whatever you ask be it as foreboding and unmovable as this mountain, it will be done. What kind of prayer has Jesus got in mind at this point? No, no, surely the prayer he has in mind is the prayer of the temple solomon 's prayer of when they sin, that kind of prayer. for when your sins mount as high as a mountain, or when you look at the judgment of God and you shake because you know. You know that in the depth of your heart that your best is filthy rags. And you know you've neglected and you've rejected the author of life. And that the God of all holiness will call you to account and you will be left speechless before him. And everything you've been striving for in life, it feels like dust and ashes. And you feel like dust and ashes because you're convinced that what the Bible says is true. That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death in eternity there will be everlasting condemnation under the anger of God and the withered fig tree is what your soul deserves and as the memory of your personal personal sin builds up and, and that mountain of offenses rises in your mind and just as the awfulness of your condition threatens to throw you into madness you cry out like the tax collector in Jesus's story Lord have mercy on me a sinner The only words you can find, maybe, the depth of their meaning that you can't comprehend. But as you cry out, then Jesus, gentle King Jesus, says, You will receive. When you pray for forgiveness, there's no limit of supply. When you pray for forgiveness, there's not maximum spend. Now, as much as you need to move the mountain, it will be given. How, how, how can that be well the temple was where prayers for forgiveness were answered with the blood of the sacrifices but but where now where do you pray now since the temple has failed what where, where, where's the answer going to come from well here is jesus declared at his birth that he's come to save his people from their sins declared on his way to jerusalem that in jerusalem he will be delivered over condemned to death and mocked and flogged and crucified as a sacrifice for sin that the temple hadn't so much failed but served its purpose because what was pictured in those sacrifices had arrived this then is how jesus is the gentle king he's not gentle in his judgment but he's very gentle in his dealing with sinners you see what he demands verse 22 if you believe trust trust the gentle king for the forgiveness of your sins He doesn't ask you to sort yourself out first He doesn't ask you to to pay him back he doesn't ask you to meet him part way he only asks for you to trust him and when we ask trusting the gentle king then he gives his blood for our rescue stands himself under the judgment that our sin deserves No sin is too great for him to forgive. No mountain of unworthiness is so stuck that he can't move it. His gentleness is that he does that for all who trust in him. See, see your king comes to you, your gentle king. And we have to each ask, how will you respond to him? And what would hold your heart back from crying out, Hosanna. Some people just don't recognize him. The crowds in Jerusalem, who is this? Now if our hearts are not stirred with hosannas, when we need to ask of our hearts, do we recognize him? Now maybe like the blind men at the end of the last chapter, our prayer needs to be, we want to see. Maybe that's always going to be our prayer, isn't it? When we find our hearts cold and hard, we want to see Jesus. We want seeing Jesus to draw hosannas out. What would hold your heart back from crying hosanna? Some people, like the authorities in the temple, are indignant. They have no real sense of sin or judgment. How dare you tell me of a saviour? I don't need saving. I can manage myself. Don't tell me about sin. I don't want to hear about sin. No one likes to think of themselves as a helpless sinner. We all wriggle out of it in some way. I guess it's just another form of blindness. But the Bible is clear about sin. Human history is clear about the sin of human nature. Our own consciences make clear to us about our sin, yet we still wriggle. And maybe we need to keep praying. We want to see to keep praying until our hearts burst with hosannas no like that little girl's scream that went like a knife into the heart of everyone in the train the beauty of that cry that says save saved hosanna intense lostness and as that lostness gets turned into cries for mercy to the gentle king comes immense foundness hosanna the king has come He's come to save. He's come to be the place of judgment and mercy. He's come to answer every trusting prayer for forgiveness. He's come to banish away sorrow and sighing. He's come to wrap up his people with overwhelming gladness and joy. Hosanna. Let's pray. God in heaven, we want to see Jesus. Please would you show him to us? Please show him to us that our hearts might cry, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Amen.